You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Air Church. We exist to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus who love him and love their neighbour. We pray these sermons serve to deepen your love for and obedience to Jesus. And whilst we trust these podcast sermons bless you, we would not want them to replace you gathering with us personally as you're able to or committing to a local gospel church near you. So if you want to explore Jesus more, gather with us, or find a church near you, please get in touch through our website, harvestair.church. You are loved. Taken from Matthew chapter 6, and I'll read from verse 1 to verse 18. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who is in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door, And pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you even ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, Neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Thank you, Joy. Um, Please keep your Bibles open at Matthew chapter 6. That'll be helpful for you um, to track along. Um, And just as uh, we come to God's Word, let me pray for us uh, for His help to understand how these things apply to our everyday lives. Father, we're so thankful that you speak by your spirit through your word that you reveal yourself to us in order to help us know you 
to love you and to live in obedience to you. We pray for soft hearts. We pray for a humble posture before your word as we seek to hear it, to treasure it, to trust it, and to obey it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I think it's fair to say, isn't it, that nobody, nobody likes a hypocrite, someone who puts on an act, which is really what a hypocrite is, isn't it? Someone who puts on an act or who wears a, a mask, someone who pretends to be good or righteous, when in reality their personal conduct and character doesn't match their public persona or how they portray themselves in public. We almost prefer people, don't we, who kind of shamelessly just own and are happy with how bad they are, as opposed to those who are hypocrites. There's almost something about that that we prefer, isn't there? Well, the, the kind of hypocrisy that Matthew's speaking about here, and that he's really been, uh, not Matthew, sorry, Jesus has been really getting at here, is someone who acts righteous on the outside, good, religious, holier than thou, someone who acts righteous, but inward, if you were to take a scan of their heart, their, their inward motives are selfish and self-centered. Their heart is far from God. And if we're really honest, our common dislike for hypocrisy in other people is surpassed only by our inability and our lack of honesty about our own hypocrisy. Our own hypocrisy. We find it easy, don't we, to point out the hypocrisy of others in our lives, yet we're not good at recognizing it on our own. And Matthew 6 this morning is going to force us to face up to our own hypocrisy. Are you ready for that? It's going to force us this morning to face up to our own hypocrisy, and in particular, religious hypocrisy, church hypocrisy. This is an in here kind of text this morning that we're all going to have to face up to and by God's grace, live out and obey. Last uh, number of weeks, the last number of weeks in Matthew, we've been looking at what real righteousness is. It's a heart deep righteousness, a love for God and a love for others. Now Jesus here in Matthew 6 has turned to show us what that righteousness looks like in practice how it's to be lived out in terms of personal religious practice. And as I use that word religion and as our culture uses it, we often think of it as a dirty word, don't we? Really, it means worship, our devotion, our obedience. James 1.27 talks about pure and undefiled religion. So in the kind of dirty way of hypocrisy, yes, it's not a helpful word, but in God's word, it's used well, and we can think of it as pure devotion. So heart-deep righteousness manifests itself in humble service and devotion in contrast to hypocritical righteousness that just puts on a public show and seeks the praise of other people. And the three areas that Jesus really drills into here, kind of the, the three areas, the three key areas of religious practice in this context, giving to the poor, prayer, and fasting. And we're going to look at those examples in particular, but really the, the principles from those three things can be applied to all of our personal devotion and worship. So the question for you and me this morning as we encounter this text, as God speaks to us through the words, uh, through his word, is this. If we're a Christian, is our religion real? Are we real? Or do we just put on a show? Do we just seek to please other people? And maybe if you're not a follower of Jesus, you're seeking to figure out what should real religion look like? What does it look like to really follow Jesus in an authentic, humble, honest way? 
So the the response that this passage is calling of us this morning, it'll be up on the screen for you. It's this, to practice your, my religion from a pure heart that seeks a reward from our Father. To practice our religion from a pure heart that seeks reward from our Father. So the first thing we're going to see this morning is this, if our religion, if my religion is real, my heart won't be motivated by people's praise. Verse 1, if you look down, is really kind of the headline verse for this whole section. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So there's two parts to what we're going to see throughout this whole section. The, the nature of hypocrisy and then the fact that there's no reward for it. The nature of hypocrisy, the emptiness of hypocrisy. Hypocritical religion only does things to be seen by others. You see that repeatedly in this section, verse 1, verse 2, to be praised by people, verse 5, and then verse 16. This section is full of repetition this morning, um, so you can't miss some of the key things that Jesus is trying to communicate. Hypocritical religion only does things to be seen by others. The heart of a hypocrite is more concerned about what people think than what God thinks. Their motives, our motives, are all messed up. A hypocrite goes to church and gathers to pray and gives money to be seen to be doing the right thing, to gain respect within the community. Not because they really love God and love others. I once went on a a choir tour in school to London Uh, The only reason I joined the choir was firstly because Zoe was in it, and also because it it got us a trip to London. But we had these two shows lined up, um, and uh, 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 two performances lined up as a choir in London in these like really beautiful old churches, and both of them, nobody showed up, (laughs) which is no surprise really. Like who wants to go to their lunchtime, use one of their lunchtimes up during the week to go and see a, a secondary school choir from Ireland, right? But nobody showed up. Uh, And our response was really a test of our motive as to why we were in the choir, why we wanted to sing. Were we just there to sing for an audience? Or were we there to sing because we really loved to sing? We loved what we were doing. We loved it for the sake of who we got to do it with rather than for the applause of the audience who would watch us. Just to be clear as we go through this passage, it's not that affirmation and approval are bad things, okay? We see encouragement and honoring in the Bible. We thought about that at the end of last year in Romans 12, didn't we? It's good to honor one another, to encourage one another, but there's a big difference between being motivated by that and receiving it, isn't there? Big difference between that being your motivation for your Christian life and receiving it from someone else. It's when we crave and are motivated by that affirmation and approval of others that things turn bad, that things become sinful. What are the symptoms of a people pleaser, the kind of people pleaser that Jesus talks about here? They crave respect. They fear rejection and are crippled by it. They can't take criticism. They're always comparing themselves to other people because they want praise from other people. They're more focused on how people are loving them 
instead of enjoying the freedom of being loved by God and loving others. And what are the real motives behind all that? What are the the heart motives, really, if we really dug deep into that? Well, if you're familiar with the the Westminster Short Catechism, which begins, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy himself forever. Really, the, the, the motive of a people pleaser is man's chief end is to glorify himself and enjoy people's praise forever. That's the difference. Man's chief end for a people pleaser is to glorify himself and enjoy people's praise forever rather than to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. What are the consequences if we serve and live like that? Well, firstly, it dishonors God, doesn't it? Pursuing our own honor robs God of His. There's an old prayer which I've used a number of times just personally, and it says this, keep me at all times from robbing you and from depriving my soul of your due worship. So you see, two things go on when we rob God of His honor. We rob Him of His honor, but we rob our own souls of the joy and the fulfillment of worshiping Him. That's what the prayer says. Keep me at all times from robbing you and from depriving my own soul of your due worship. It dishonors God, and it's a cheap substitute. If all we ever do is live for people's praise, worship, follow Jesus, turn up the church for people's praise, it's a cheap substitute if, all, if that's all we're ever seeking. Verse 2, verse 5, and verse 16 make that so clear. They have received the reward. If all you want is the praise of other people, you will get that, but that's all you'll get. That's all you'll get. It doesn't recognize the cheapness of earthly approval compared to the glory of eternal approval. It dishonors God as a cheap substitute and it's enslaving. If all you ever do is live for the honor and respect and praise of other people, if that is your sole motive, it will enslave you because you'll never get enough. You'll always need more. You'll always doubt whether people like you and will praise you. One commentator puts it this way, the desire to have others reward us and praise us for our devotion is a powerful drug. It's like getting hit, isn't it? But it will always leave us wanting more, coming back for more, drifting into cycles of crippled criticism. Compare that to the, the freeness that comes from being known and loved and approved of by God and getting to love other people from a place of grace and acceptance. And then, in the end, if that's all we ever live for, it will crush us, because sometimes we won't get it. And another dangerous result or potential consequence of living for other people's praise is it will compromise us. If all we ever do is live for people's praise, if that's our sole motive, we will end up compromising. We will do whatever those around us or whatever the culture around us wants us to do in order to be liked and praised by them. Paul says in Galatians 1.10, for now am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. He gets it. He gets it. If I was still trying to please man, I wouldn't be bothered being a Christian. I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. Loved ones, if you are in this, 
to get approval from other people and from man and from the culture, you're in the wrong game. You're in the wrong game. Yes, we should honor and encourage one another, but if we are only in this for the praise of people, we're in the wrong game. Because if we try to be faithful, if we seek to be faithful in living our faith, the culture will not like it. And even within the church sometimes, people won't like us. If we live for other people's praise, we won't endure. Because the praise of people is fickle and its reward is finite. So what does a heart that is motivated by people's praise look like in the areas of giving, prayer, and fasting? Well, first up, just to say with these things, doing these things, of course, is not wrong in and of themselves. Jesus here just assumes that we are doing these things. It's not how we do them. It's primarily the motives behind them. And Jesus isn't saying you can never do these things in public, okay? If you take this verse to its literalistic end, you would never pray in public, right? That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's making stark contrasts here in order to highlight the true motives that we are to have behind these things. What matters is heart motivation. So in the area of giving, giving here in particular, Jesus is talking about is giving to the poor. So we could think about giving to the church in general, but here in particular, Jesus has in mind giving to the poor. Doing it to, for the praise of people means I make a song and dance about my giving, okay? We get out the big lottery check. I used to work, um, the floor I used to work on in Glasgow and say center of the floor above me was the company who used to hand out the, the lottery checks. So you used to see the odd time people coming out with these huge lottery checks. If we are living for people's praise, we will seek to give in a way where we, we want the photo opportunity. We want the big check to be noticed, We'll tell other people openly about how much we give, how much of a sacrifice it is for us to give. We'll look down on others who we don't think sacrifice as much as we do. We think that we, the more we give, the more we get a say. We want recognition for our contribution, maybe quite literally in the form of a plaque or having our name put on the wall, or having something named after it. It's one thing for that to be your motivation. It's another thing for someone to honor you in that way. Giving prayer. What about prayer? Someone who seeks to people please in prayer makes sure their prayer can be seen and heard. Someone who seeks to people please, please will likely have an inconsistency between their private prayer life and their public prayer life. They'll go to the prayer meetings. They'll turn up for every single one. But they're never to be found on their knees behind a closed door at home. Robert Murray McShane, who was a free church minister up in, in St. Pete's, well-known Scottish theologian, said this, what a man is on his knees before God, that he is and nothing more. What a man is or a woman on his knees before God, that he is, and nothing more. Prayer really is a primary indicator with regards to our heart motivations. A people-pleasing prayer seeks to use big words and pray long prayers. And we'll see the contrast of the simplicity and the honesty in the Lord's Prayer in just a moment. A people-pleasing prayer We'll preach instead of pray, although pray to make a point, right? We've, we've all done that, right? Or we've all sat and heard that. People who preach instead of pray. People who pray to make a point. 
I was at a, an event once where someone was asked to give thanks for the meal, and they took the, that opportunity to basically preach a sermon, right? The gospel had already been preached. He just needed to humbly say thanks to the Lord. I pray when I think, I pray what I think people want to hear. It's another um, symptom of a people pleaser. I pray what I think people want to hear. I pray prayer lingo instead of praying just honestly from my heart and in accordance with Scripture. And prayer that wants to be seen by others manifests not just in the kind of big, brash, loud public prayers, but also in silent prayer, in not praying. And I say this with um, much gentleness and grace, so please hear me. I want to say this with much gentleness and grace, but the reality is that people who are too scared to pray are just as concerned about being seen by others as those who pray out loud and do it only to be seen by others. It's really just a subtle form of pride, isn't it? We're too scared about what people will think about what we say. We forget that we're praying to our Father with our brothers and sisters. Giving, prayer, fasting. Really, fasting is linked very tightly with prayer. Really, the the two should go together. It's not something we tend to think about much as Christians or really practice. Uh, One writer kind of helpfully explains it. Maybe you haven't fasted. Maybe you have fasted. Maybe it's something you don't know much about. Well, one writer says this, biblically understood, fasting partners an intensification of prayer. It's the decision to set aside a period of time to focus on bringing maybe a particular issue before God in prayer. It's removing every distraction, including the necessary pleasures of eating and drinking to seek the face of God with a specific petition. So it's not for the sake of not doing something. It's not doing something for the sake of focusing on God. And it may be for a particular circumstance, a particular season, in order to really come humbly and highly focused before the Lord. So to seek the praise of people rather than the praise of God in the area of fasting, and we could extend really to any form of spiritual discipline, is to make people sure, make sure people know we're struggling, that we find it hard. So if you were to fast, oh man, I'm so hungry. I've been fasting all day. Can you have pity on me? I've been fasting from food for three days now. Oh man, I'm so tired because I got up at 5 a.m. to pray this morning. It's just so hard getting up so early. I feel the need to tell everyone that I've completed my Bible reading plan on time this year for once. Let's go and tell everyone, hey everyone, I completed my Bible reading plan. That's a great thing. But is your motivation so that people will praise you for it or because you just delighted in time with the Lord? Sinclair Ferguson uh, says on fasting particularly, he says, fast, Jesus says, such self-discipline is essential in the Christian life, but when you do it, be a normal human being. Take a shower, use some aftershave, and smile. Do your fasting before the Lord and not before men. You don't have to use aftershave, you can use perfume or whatever your fragrance of choice is. Really, if we were to broaden these people-pleasing principles out a bit more from those three things. Maybe think about our gathering as a, as a church, as Christians. People pleasers get involved in things out of compulsion rather than out of love for God and others. Okay, we think to ourselves, I, I better show my face tonight. 
so I don't get a black mark against my name. Maybe in serving, I get annoyed when I don't get asked to do certain things. I hold platform roles more highly than background roles. I think I'm above certain forms of service. I'm marked by jealousy. I choose to pick faults in others rather than cheer them on. That's the, the, the symptoms of a people pleaser. You want to see other people fall so that other people will like you more. Rather than just humbly cheering them on because we're all in this together, right? I see my, my, the, using, the, the, the using of my gifts as a right rather than a privilege. I place more importance on presentation and appearance or the presentation and appearance of others than on heart motivation, humility, and their character. And maybe if we were to think about it in the, the realm of evangelism, when someone asks me a question about my faith, I use it as an opportunity to show off rather than show them Jesus because I want them to think I'm clever. I want them to think I'm smart rather than taking the opportunity to give them what they so desperately need, to show them Jesus simply and honestly with humility. So all these things indicate our motives are more self-focused than focused on honoring God and serving others. This is what hypocritical righteousness looks like. It's not easy to look that in the mirror, is it? What does heart righteousness look like? What does real righteousness look like in practice? What do pure heart motives look like? Well, that's the second thing we see here. If my religion is real, my heart won't be motivated by people's praise. My heart will be motivated by our Father's reward. If you look down um, at verse 1 again, again, the headline verse in this section showed us that our motivation for the Christian life is to be liked and praised by other people. We will have no reward from our Father. Therefore, our motivation should be, our heart motivation should be living for Jesus, seeking to please Him and the Father and receive the Father's rewards. You might think, uh, that seems kind of shallow. Are, are we just doing it to get something out of it? Kind of, I don't know if you thought that way. At least I thought that way when I first read the passage. Are we just doing it for a reward? But the reward that Jesus is talking about here is ultimately with the Father. It's with him. We don't go along a queue at the end when Jesus returns, take the gift and walk on our way and think, oh man, yes, what a great gift, what a great reward. No, our reward is with him. It's to be face to face, as we sung about, with him. The reward Jesus is talking about here is with the Father. It's the joy of being with him and all the benefits that come along with that. Hebrews 12, 2, we see this in Jesus' own life too, how he lived in light of a reward. Hebrews 12, 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He had a reward, joy at the Father's right hand. That's what motivated him, obedience and love for his Father. So what is this reward for you and me that the Father offers us? It's eternal life. It's sonship. It's resurrection body. It's eternal pleasure and joy at the Father's right hand along with Jesus. It's sinlessness, no sickness, face to face beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ in the presence of our Creator. 
And Matthew 6, um, 19 to 21, which we'll look at in a few weeks, really speaks to this treasure even more so. It's heavenly. It's not this worldly. It's heavenly. You notice how it talks about God, Father in heaven. It's unfading. Unfading like the applause of people, right? The applause always ends, doesn't it? But the treasure and the reward that God offers us is unfading. It's the reward of those whose hearts truly love God, evidenced in a humble, humble, selfless, Godward devotion. It's religion, devotion, and worship that is done in secret in comparison to that which is done to be seen by others. So in the area of giving, what does that look like? Verse 3, it is to be anonymous giving, humble giving, discreet. So discreet, Jesus uses the image of, the giving is to be so discreet that your left hand doesn't even know what your right hand's doing. That's how discreet it is to be. It's almost to be so discreet, you don't even know what you're doing. I think you do need to know what you're doing, but you see what Jesus means there, right? A number of uh, people, whenever we were setting the church up as, as a charity, we originally were using um, our sending church's accounts, and as we were setting up our own accounts, um, I became aware of a number of people who were giving to the work of this church, who um, were just giving out of their own pocket on a monthly basis. They never came to me and said, we'd like to give to the church. They, were, they just did it. And the only reason I found out about it was because we had to set up our own bank accounts. Anonymous, don't need to be known, don't need to have their name written on something. Don't make a song and dance about it. Giving, what about fasting or maybe spiritual discipline if we think it on a wider basis? It's religion, serving and worshiping that doesn't seek attention. It's doing hard things like fasting. Okay, fasting and it is not an easy thing. It's doing hard things for God serving faithfully without making a song and dance about how demanding it is. It's doing hard things for God without making a song and dance about how demanding it is. It will make us tired. There'll be times when we feel tired and weary. But we do it together. We do it for Him. Giving, fasting, and praying and really, the, the Lord's Prayer here takes up most of the space, and so we'll spend a little bit more time on that. It's prayer that is humble, simple, honest, and from the heart. So here we have in verse 7 to 13, if you look down, possibly the most well-known part of the Bible, even people who haven't read the Bible much will be familiar with this for various reasons. And really, it is the, the best, one of the best antidotes to seeking approval from men. This prayer is one of the best antidotes to seeking the approval and praise of men. And it's a great example of real heart-deep religion. So in contrast to the empty words and the many words that verse 7 talks about, if you look down, this prayer is meaningful and simple. Look how short it is. It's meaningful and it's simple. And verse 8 tells us why we don't need to put on a performance with this prayer, with any prayer, because our Father already knows what we need. We don't need to put on this big fancy elaborate prayer because He already knows what we need. It's like when uh, kids are learning to talk, right? We, we don't expect them to be 
fully articulate and be able to spiel this big paragraph of English and all these structured sentences together in order to get food or drink. Okay, we, we know they're hungry. They're always hungry, right? We don't need them to come out with a big long paragraph of well-spoken English. So it's the same with prayer. We don't need to put on a show because our Father already knows what we need. Just be honest. Be simple. Be humble in our prayer. So let's look a little bit closer then at this prayer which so helpfully and necessarily shows us what real prayer looks like. It's helpful because as Jesus hints at, we often don't know how to pray or what to pray. Pray then like this. We need to be taught. And it's necessary because of how selfish and sinful our motives often are, aren't they? We need this prayer to reorientate our hearts. And in many ways, we should think of the Lord's Prayer as a a model prayer. Yes, we can say it as it is, um, as it's written. And sometimes, and I don't know about you, sometimes I've used this in my life when I just don't know what to pray. Maybe you're just tired. You're going through a difficult circumstance and you don't know what to pray and you just pray these words. That's great, but it's more than that. Jesus never intended it to become something we associate with boring repetition, okay? Pray then like this, like this. It's more of a a framework or a structure which should really shape all of our prayers. It's kind of like I was thinking, it was kind of like Joseph has a train track pieces in his toy box. Uh, It's the same pieces every time, Uh, granted that one or two go missing every once in a while, but it's the same pieces every time, but the shape of the track changes every time he builds it. So the pieces are all there, but it always takes a different shape. And so it is with our prayers. We have these really helpful key elements, but we're not to treat them as a kind of as a boring repetition. We can use this as a springboard or a platform to shape all of our prayers. And this prayer is so opposite to the people-pleasing performance prayer that we're so prone to. And it can be summarized really in two headings. You're God, I am not. You are God, I am not. You are God, our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. You are God, I am not please provide for me. Please forgive me. Please protect me. And it starts with that crucial and hugely comforting two words. Our Father. Our. Okay, we pray together non-isolation. And even when we do pray on our own in our homes, We pray as people who are part of God's church. Our prayers are never in isolation. We pray as part of a family. Our boss, our teacher, no, our father. We pray as part of a family. We get to approach God as a father. So here is our adoption, here is our our sonship, our daughtership, our inheritance, our approval. Here is all we could ever want or need. In those two words, we have our assurance. 
He is a Father who doesn't ignore us. Here is our encouragement towards honesty and simplicity, like a child before their father. Here is why we don't need to crave and pursue the approval of others. Because we have a father who loves us unconditionally. We pray to a father who hears us, who loves us, who cares for us, who already knows what we need. Isn't that incredible? There's nothing that can happen in your life that he does not know what you need in order to live for him in that moment. And here we have in those two words really that great antidote to a sinful heart that pursues shallow human praise. J.A. Packer, uh, this is one of the things I read of his a long time ago that has always stuck with me. He says this about... um, thinking of God as our Father, um, in his book, Knowing God, which I was actually chatting to someone about this week. If you've never read it, you should. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his Father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. It's the heart of our faith. We are children of God, adopted. So this prayer invites us to cry out to him and to honor him. It really is a prayer that puts God first. That's what the first half of the prayer is about. And that's a good thing. So here it is. You you are God in, in heaven, our Father who is close to us. Father communicates closeness, but he is in heaven, so we are reminded that he is a sovereign ruler and creator of the whole world. Our Father, our Dad, is not just the one who is close to us, but who is the sovereign creator and ruler of the whole universe. That's who we cry out to. Hallowed be your name. Your name be honored, not mine. I don't live for my own praise, I live for his. Your kingdom come. May your rule and reign become increasingly seen and submitted to in people's hearts and through the church until Jesus returns. I'm not building my own kingdom here. We are not building our own kingdom here. We are asking his kingdom to be built, his kingdom to come down in our hearts and in this church and in this world. Your will be done. We want what you want. We want your will to be accomplished and done through us, whatever that means whatever that might be, whatever cost that might have. You're God, I am not. Please provide for me. That's the daily bread part. And it's not provide what I want, it's provide what I need. Give me what I need in order to do your will that we just prayed about. Give me what I need in order to do your will. Please forgive me. Really, that's praying for our deepest need, our salvation, our transformation. Please clear the debt that my sin creates. And the Lord's Prayer so helpfully includes this. It so helpfully builds in this rhythm of repentance and assurance into our prayers. Because even as Christians, there's still sin lingering in our hearts. So we need to daily ask forgiveness. The difference is we ask it in Christ with assurance that we'll be forgiven. And then verse 14 to 15 speaks to how we're to be those who also forgive. 
We can't pray this prayer and ask for forgiveness if we aren't willing to forgive others. That's really what it's talking about. Forgiven people forgive. That's what verses 14 to 15 are really getting at. We are to adopt a, a humble heart posture of forgiveness towards those who've wronged us. That's what verse 14 to 15 are encouraging us. As those who are forgiven, we are to adopt a humble heart posture of forgiveness towards those who've wronged us. And we've thought about that a bit recently. And then the last part, please protect me. Lead me not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We recognize that sin still lingers and needs to be killed. And that although Satan has been bound through the work of the cross, he is still seeking to deceive and devour. That's humble, honest, God-focused prayer. That's the prayer of a heart that is truly seeking God and delights to do it in secret because it's a heart that primarily hungers for God and not the praise of others. This is what real religion looks like. Some kind of fake matter of routine, put my Sunday best on kind of fake religion. Real religion is religion that loves God and loves others. It doesn't perform for people. It's not motivated by the praise of people. It's faith that's put into practice from a heart that truly loves God and others, which is the summation of the whole law, right? And it's a religion that is embodied perfectly, not by us, but by Jesus. He, he gave of himself to the poor. He identified with them. He treated them with dignity. He became poor in the greatest sense. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians, that though he was rich yet for our sake, he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. He gave of himself to the poor. He fasted faithfully and without complaint for us. That's what Matthew 4 showed us. He prayed with humility and in privacy. Matthew 6, 26, 39 and going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He didn't do it for the praise of people. In fact, he was despised, rejected. He did it out of obedience and love for the Father and out of love for us. That's why he did that. That's why he became poor. That's why he fasted. That's why he prayed. Through his loving obedience, you and I can be forgiven. We can be adopted. We can share in his inheritance. It's not ours. It's ours in him, but it's his. He earned it, and he, by grace, allows us to share in it. We can pray our Father because Jesus prayed it for us first. And now through faith in him, through being united to him, we can pray our Father with him. Real righteousness, real religion flows from the grace and righteousness we receive from him. So loved ones, let's practice our religion from a pure heart, a heart that seeks reward from our Father, doesn't live for people's praise, 
Let's do it out of a selfless love for God and for others. Because of how much we have been loved in Jesus, he lived out his faith perfectly. His righteousness is credited to us through repentance of our sin and faith in him. And now because of grace, we get to live out that righteousness with gratitude, with humility, with freedom, with simplicity, with honesty for God's fame and not for our own. So let me just invite us as we, before we come before the Lord's table, which is what we're going to do in in just a moment, let me just invite you, invite myself, to just spend a, a moment in prayerful reflection on what Jesus has been saying here in these verses, to maybe come in confession and repentance for where we have lived hypocritically, have worshipped hypocritically, and to really ask for his forgiveness and his help. Let's go to him in prayer, as he calls us to here. Go to him as our Father in Jesus. Let's do that, and then we'll come around the Lord's table. Father, please forgive the hypocrisy of our hearts. Please create in us by your Spirit pure motives, pure desires to love you and to love others selflessly with a freedom, with a freedom that we have in Christ. We thank you for him, that he's so perfectly obeyed for us. And now in him, we can obey these things increasingly from a renewed heart empowered by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.